Welcome, ABF. We're so glad that you're here to worship with us today. Let's give it over to Chad and Erica. Let's worship him.
Shine. 
Welcome, ABF Online. We're so glad to be with you again this week. Remember, last weekend was the official kickoff of summer. We are in the middle of the summer season. Feels weird to say that because some of you are just praying for graduation this next week and the following week. And we have a lot of things coming up here at ABF. First and foremost, we want to tell you that we're so glad that we're a part of your life. And we're looking forward to the day that some of you will actually see here on our campus in the days and weeks ahead. But I'm also aware of the fact that we have a growing audience that's outside the state of California. So welcome from Seattle, welcome from Texas, and everything in between. We're glad you're part of our ABF team. Now, a couple of things. We can connect with you better if you let us know what's going on with you. So either Texas at 9,700,000, 97,097,000. I was just seeing if you're paying attention, and we'll be praying for you via those texts. Now, a couple of things. Uh, You can still be involved in our meal program by dropping off uh, meals here at church. We're still assembling them here, and you can go online to the uh, message on the screen behind me, and you can see where to register online. Our next meal program is on June 14th. We do hope that we'll be serving in person the way we used to come the fall. Then uh, we also have our women's studies. Now, ladies, I know you love to plan ahead, so I'm letting you know now that starts the week of June 28th. Contact Adrian. You'll find out more about what our summer study looks like. Now, it's just the reverse of that. The men's Bible study on Tuesday mornings continues through June, and then we will take off the summer months of July and August. So that's uh, Tuesdays at 8 o'clock for the men. And then, of course, we can't thank you enough uh, for your support of the ministry here, whether you've been giving online or mailing your check uh, through the mail. It's a part of what we need to sustain this ministry, whether it's here, across the street, or around the world. And so uh, I hope that you know that this is something that makes such a difference uh, in our lives by being connected, whether it's online or in person, and we hope again to see you soon. Now, without any further ado, I want to welcome Mr. Josh Annie Oho! Let's give it up for Josh as he shares the word with us. You say, too much? No, nothing is too much, as we welcome Pastor Josh to the stage right now. Well, thank you, Pastor John. Never ceased to be amazed by your introductions. That is certainly the most flattering introductions I ever get is from Pastor John. He's the best. Hey, everybody, how are we doing? It is great to see you 
today. I actually have one more little update piece of information that uh, I'd like to share with you. So we did this partnership with the Children's Hunger Fund starting just a couple weeks ago, a new partnership. And we were packing food packs as a church and having those here back at the church today, actually, as we're filming to get picked up, brought back the Children's Hunger Fund so that they can distribute those to under resourced families in the LA area. And I wanted to report that we packed 324 food packs. Pretty awesome. Very well done. They were actually only planning on bringing 240 packs here originally. And then last minute, the guy said, his name's Hal. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to double it, bring it, and we'll see what they pack. Packed 324 boxes. Amazing, amazing work. So I have a question for you. I'm wondering, where are my readers at? Where are my people that love to read? Historically, I am not necessarily a huge, huge reader. I'm definitely trying to become more so of a reader. My personal favorite right now is kind of just like Christian living books. Francis Chan is like my guy. Anything that he writes, I'm pretty much going to read. But I've never really been a fiction reader. I don't know if you enjoy reading fiction. I had one stint in my life where I was reading fiction regularly, and it's not that it was like this diverse um, plethora group of many different fiction novels. It was one single series. I don't know if you guys remember it. It was back when I was in late high school, early college. A bunch of the books had already come up. I start, come out, I started late and could not put these books down. It was the Left Behind series. I was obsessed. I remember being on vacation and my family was off doing like fun vacation and things and I just wanted to read. It's so not like me, but I just fell in love with this series. Another cool thing about it is Jerry B. Jenkins, who is one of the co-authors. His nephew was one of the high school leaders at my high school ministry at the time, and he knew that I was obsessed, so he got Jerry B. to sign a copy of book number two, Tribulation Force. Pretty big deal. While I'm not trying to comment on the theology on those books, there was just something about them. There was something about those books that kind of got everybody wrapped up. I appreciated the story. I appreciated the characters. I thought it was just a fun read, but I think there was something deeper than that. We Christians, we're fascinated. We have this fascination with the end times, with Jesus's return and the surrounding events. And so, man, I think just having the tangible picture of what it might be like, of what it could be like, was so, so intriguing. Still today, there's absolutely a fascination with the end times, with Jesus' return. And I don't know about you, but over the last few, over the last year especially, I feel like this conversation has come up a bunch of, is it coming? Like, is it coming soon? When is it going to happen? For sure, that conversation is coming up a lot. I'd imagine you've been a part of those, some of those conversations too, even just over the last year. And the interesting thing is we are not alone and having these wonderings, thinking about it, the Thessalonian church absolutely was fascinated with and had questions about Jesus's return and the surrounding events. So what we're going to do is we are going to pray and then we're going to dive in and see what Paul has to say on the topic today. Let's pray. Dear Father, um, Lord, thank you so much for a chance to be together, for a chance to dive into your word. 
Uh, Father, I pray that you would just speak clearly. I thank you so much for this text. I thank you so much for Paul writing this letter to the Thessalonian church and just giving them instruction and wisdom. Lord, I pray that this wisdom would speak to our hearts today, that you would move and stir in us. Even if it's a message that we've probably heard before, Lord, I pray that you would use it in sweet ways today. Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way, that you would say it how you want to say it, and that we just have a sweet time together in your word. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So turn on over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And if you remember last week, Pastor Scott was talking on the passage just leading up to this. He was at the end of chapter 4, and he was beginning to address some of the Thessalonians' questions about Jesus' return. If you didn't get a chance to listen to Pastor Scott's message from last week, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. You should actually just go and listen to him instead of listening to me. Just do it. Um, but man, there were some cool, cool things that came out of that message. Some things that stood out to me as I was listening is, man, how amazing, how dramatic, how incredible that moment's going to be when Jesus actually returns and comes on the clouds. Like the event that's going to happen for those that are present and alive and witness it, it is going to be the most incredible spectacle that anybody has ever seen. Pretty wild to think about that actually happening. The second thing that stood out was just the idea of us being reunited with loved ones who have passed. Uh, I was standing in the back listening to Pastor Scott and legitimately got a little teary-eyed just thinking about how sweet that moment's going to be when we're reunited with loved ones who have passed. And what just a beautiful, beautiful picture. So today's passage, Paul is continuing on the conversation. He's addressing some of their other questions that they had. And the first one is, when does it all happen? When does this all happen? Starting in verse 1. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So a little disclaimer before we get into today's text and discussing when Jesus' return is going to come and the events that surround it. I just wanted to put a disclaimer out saying that this, what I'm going to talk about is not meant to be a comprehensive discussion, not meant to explain everything. I'm not trying to get into all the little intricacies of each different view. Rather, my focus is going to be on the big picture and specifically how it relates to this passage that we're diving into today. That being said, starting there in verse 1, you'll see that Paul mentions the times and the seasons, the times and the seasons surrounding Jesus's return. So I think it makes perfect sense to start with the when in regards to when is this tribulation period going to happen. Now, if you're unaware with what I mean by that, what I mean by tribulation period, most theologians agree that there will be the seven-year period of tribulation surrounding Jesus's return. The tribulation period is going to be wild, absolutely wild. There'll be war, famine, lots of death, 
martyrdom of Christians, a massive earthquake, and lots of other craziness. And that's just at the very beginning. That's just at the beginning. So Paul's response to the Thessalonians question of, man, when are these times and seasons going to come? Look there in verse one. He says, you don't need anything written to you about this. Cool, Paul, thanks. That is super, super helpful. But then continue in verse two, he says, you're fully aware, you already know that the end, this period surrounding Jesus' return will come completely unexpectedly. He uses two illustrations. The first one is the illustration of a thief. You have no idea when a thief is going to strike. That's kind of the point, right? The element of surprise is the thief's like main like tool that they have at their disposal. A thief that announces and gives away when he is going to strike is not really a thief. I think there's other words for that. Um, I could think of a few other words. Uh, caught, arrested, uh, nincompoop, dumb guy, like all those words, but thief, like not so much. Um, the second illustration that he uses is the illustration of a pregnant woman. Due dates are an interesting concept. I always kind of assumed when I was growing up that due date meant due date, and that's not true at all. Really, it's just kind of like this loose guess. It could come a couple weeks before, a couple weeks after. There's like zero specifics. It's just like a general, very broad time frame. And so using both of these illustrations together, Paul really emphasizes the point that we have no idea when Jesus is gonna come back. We have no clue. The only thing that we do know is that he is going to come back. Apparently, the Thessalonian church already knew this, or at least they should. There was most likely teaching about this going on in the early church that was pretty common. If you remember, Jesus was just around just a short time before, before, and he spoke specifically on this topic. We're actually gonna look a little bit at what he had to say here in a little bit. Uh, but that didn't stop them from asking, from wondering, from worrying, all of those things. Sound familiar? Right? Isn't that true here today? Some people are just so caught up, so occupied, um, so worried about, man, when is this all going to go down? When is the season of tribulation going to happen? And more specifically, when is Jesus going to return? The events that Scott, Pastor Scott spoke about last week, when are those events gonna happen in relation to this tribulation period, this seven year period? Really, there is the question is, is it gonna come at the beginning, the middle, or the end? Those are kind of our three options for when Jesus is gonna return in regards to that seven year tribulation period. The first option is pre-trib or pre-tribulation where Jesus will return at the very beginning of those seven years, kind of kicking off the tribulation time. Obviously, in that case, the church would avoid the entire tribulation time because the Lord has already come back to call them. The second option is post-trib, post-tribulation at the end of the tribulation. So after the seven years is complete, then Jesus comes back to claim his church. And obviously, in that case, the church would be around for the entirety of the tribulation period. Third option is I'm going to generally call it mid-trib, mid-tribulation. Uh, here, I am using to say anywhere in between, 
right? So some would hold that Jesus will come back right at the three and a half year mark, right in the dead center. That would technically be your mid-trib um, position. Some people just believe sometime before God's wrath, before the bold judgments that we see in, in Revelation, and that would be considered a pre-wrath position. So those are kind of our options. Obviously, under the mid-trib or pre-wrath, the church would experience some of the tribulation, but not all, obviously missing out on especially some of the most intense parts of the tribulation. So where are my prophecy nerds at? If you're a prophecy nerd, own it even in your homes right now. Who is all about this stuff? Just eats it up, just loves it. Josh, I just want you to dive in and give me more good stuff. Tell me things I don't know. I want to learn. Who are you? I know that you're out there. On the other hand, who are my Josh? I could not care less which one it is. I don't care if it's pre, post, mid, doesn't matter because I know you're out there too. I personally lean definitely more towards the second one. I'm sorry to offend you that are like all about it. Uh, it's not that I don't care. It's not that I'm not intrigued. I am. It's just that the more that I research, the more I read scripture, the more I listen to different arguments, the more I'm convinced of two things. Number one, we just don't know. Like we just don't know for sure. And number two is it really just doesn't matter right now. It, I just don't think it does. Jesus is gonna do what he's gonna do. He's gonna come back whenever he does. And we're gonna look back and be like, oh, that makes sense. That adds up. I see how that all works together now. And I just don't think it's worth arguing about over right now, but that's just me. Whenever I am preparing to preach, I read different commentators, I listen to different pastors, and this week I found it very interesting. Kind of my three main sources, my three main guys that I go to, guys that I respect, I generally agree with, I appreciate their theology. I was looking at these different guys in relation to this passage, and all three of them had a different stance. One of them was pre-trib, one of them was mid-trib, and one of them was post-trib. And all three of them made valid points, how it all worked together. I was like, oh, I see where they're coming from. I don't know if I necessarily agree, but like, I can see how that works, especially as it relates to this passage today. I'm telling you what, the more I look into it, the more I'm convinced it was never the Lord's intent to give us a perfectly detailed timeline of events and give us all the specifics as to how he was gonna pull this thing off eventually. Do I have an opinion? Do I have a working hypothesis as to which of these options he's going to do? I do. However, do I hold that opinion loosely? Am I very open to the fact that I could be wrong and that he's gonna do it completely differently? Absolutely yes. Okay, great, Josh. So we got absolutely nowhere in the conversation of when is this going to happen? And that's true. However, that doesn't mean that this has been a pointless conversation because what it does is it sets us up perfectly. On the contrary to it being a pointless conversation, the fact that we don't know when Jesus is going to return and the fact that it seems as if God intended it to be that way has huge implications for how we live our lives here and now. The second question that we're gonna dive into is a how question. How then should we live in response to the fact that we don't know when? 
How should we live in response to the fact that we don't know when? Starting in verse four. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, this section is filled with some contrast between two opposites of light and dark, of day and night. And Paul uses those to compare two different things, to compare the church, to compare believers, those who follow Jesus, with the world, unbelievers. Paul here is saying that the world is in darkness. Unbelievers are unaware of this reality that Jesus is going to return They're spiritually asleep and therefore they live as if this temporary world is the only thing that they have to live for. They just gratify their fleshly desires. In contrast, Paul urges the church to stay awake, stay awake. And he mentions this thief illustration yet again. Now, this is not the first time that this concept of staying awake and the thief illustration have been put together, Paul here is actually borrowing from Jesus. He's kind of talking about a conversation that Jesus had while he was around. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44, Jesus says this, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So one could argue that if both Jesus and Paul talk explicitly about the same topic, we should probably listen. Uh, And I think out of that, our question should be, so what does it look like to stay awake? What does it look like to be ready? How should we live in response? And based on our scriptures and the illustration from both Paul and Jesus, I think it looks like this, pretty simple. I think it looks like living with urgency, living with urgency. If you knew that a thief was coming to break into your house tonight, how long would it take for you to start making preparations? Would you wait very long? No, you would start making those preparations immediately. Some of you would get your inner Kevin McAllister going. You would get the flamethrowers all set up. You'd get the paint cans tied on strings ready to throw over the railing. You'd get the tool chest up at the top of the stairs, right? For it to just dun, 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 dun. And some of you normal people would just do normal people things, right? Like you would lock the doors. You would triple check, make sure the doors were locked. You'd call the police ahead of time. You'd contact your neighbors. You'd make sure you were armed. Even if you just had a butter knife, you know, like you would figure out some things. You'd stay awake all night. You would live with a sense of urgency. The last few weeks of Lindsay's pregnancy, we lived in this state of perpetual anticipation. If you've had a kid, you understand Uh, We thought through where we were going. We didn't travel too far. And Lindsay had contingency plans for everything. She had a bestie spa day planned with her best friend a couple weeks before her due date. She was going to go to the spa with her best friend out in Ojai. 
And man, she had like charts and graphs and like I had like contingency envelopes of like A, B, C, and D. There was like eight different hospitals that we could go to based on like the time of day and like the direction of like the moon. Okay, so I'm like overcomplicating a little bit, but man, she had like all these, the van was packed, like the car that we were gonna use had like everything in it. She had like drivers ready to go. It was, it, it was amazing. But the whole point is it completely changed the way we live. It comp completely changed the way we live. And that's the point. I think the Lord intentionally gave us the exact amount of information that he did so that we would live with a sense of urgency, that we wouldn't drift off into a spiritual sleep, living as if Jesus' return wasn't imminent. Think about it. If the Lord had told us when it was going to happen, when he was going to return, when it was all going to go down, how would we respond? If it was really far off, we would just kind of be lazy, put it off. Oh, we've got plenty of time. If it was coming up really soon, if we knew it was happening really soon, we'd be scared, there'd be fear, there'd be worry. And that whole time building up, like nobody would have, there wouldn't have been any urgency whatsoever. But knowing that Jesus could return at any moment should impact the way we live. It should cause us to live with urgency. It should change the way we respond to temptation. It should change the way that we share Jesus with the world around us. It should change the way that we live and prioritize our entire lives. It should. I, uh, I saw a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He's a pastor from the 19th century, famous guy. He preached a sermon on this passage and there was a little excerpt that I wanted to share with you from his message on this passage. He says this, in this age of competition, most men are wide enough awake for their temporal interests, but so is it partly through our being in this body and partly through our dwelling in a sinful world that we are all of us very apt to sleep considering, concerning the interests of our souls. We drive like Jehu for this present world, but loiter for the world to come. Nothing so much concerns us as eternity and yet nothing so little affects us. We work for the present world, and we play with the world to come. Man, isn't that so true? I personally, I see it in my own life. I feel like I have seasons of living with urgency. If I'm being completely honest, I feel like there are seasons where I live with this urgency, understanding the importance of sharing, understanding the importance of living for the next life, of living for eternity. Um, but there are seasons where I don't, and it doesn't quite make sense. I had an evangelism class in my master's program a number of years ago. And this master, uh, this class, this evangelism class, man, it sparked an urgency in me. I was like out there, I had eyes wide open. I was looking for opportunities. I was making opportunities to share Jesus and live out uh, the calling that he has on my life. Now, granted, some of those were assignments that I had to fill, but still, nonetheless, I still, there was this urgency that was just kind of welling up inside of me. And I wonder why does it take prompts like that for us to live with this sense of urgency. I think as Spurgeon says, I think part of it is that we're here in this sinful flesh, we're here in this sinful world, and somehow we're just forgetful as to um, the reality of Jesus' return and how imminent it is and the reality of eternity to come. 
And I think, man, that is why we so desperately need to hear messages like this over and over again. Because again, you've probably heard this message before, but that's why we need this to give us that little kick in the pants. That's why we need to be consistently in God's word so that his word is sharpening us. That's why we desperately need to be in community with those that are gonna spur us on, that are going to encourage us to live how we want to live, what makes sense in our brain, how we should live this Christian life out. We need encouragement. Paul knew that, and so here in this last section that we're going to tackle, he, he talks about it. Our last question that we're going to talk about, well, what is coming? What's coming? Look in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So this section, this last section starts with, for God has not destined us for wrath. And I just want to take a quick look at two of the words there that I think are important for us to be on the same page with. The first one is us. Who is us referring to in God has not destined us for wrath? And I'd suggest it's a pretty easy one. Paul here is writing to the church. So he's, he's saying that believers are not destined for God's wrath. So then the second thing that we need to dive into was what, what is this wrath referring to? What is it referring to? And there's two possible interpretations of this, a short-term and a long-term interpretation of this word wrath. The short-term interpretation would say that wrath here in this passage is referring to the wrath of the tribulation period when the wrath of God will be poured out onto the earth. A pre-trib, mid-trib, or pre-wrath person might take this specific verse to confirm their view that God's wrath won't be poured out on believers here on this earth during the tribulation period because according to their view, the Lord has already come, Jesus has already come, rapture the church, and therefore they'll already be gone. Is verse nine referring to this short-term interpretation? Maybe, I would say hopefully, uh, but I guess we'll find out. Uh, the second one is a long-term interpretation. So that would say that the wrath here in this verse is referring to the wrath of eternal judgment, of separation from God for eternity in hell. Basically meaning that those who choose to accept Jesus' free gift of salvation who acknowledge Jesus' death as a sacrifice that wipes their slate clean and makes them right with God. And in response to that, they make Jesus the king and Lord of their life. Those people get to live with him, as it says there in verse 10, regardless of whether they're alive when the rapture happens or if they've already died beforehand. So Paul is just reassuring, regardless of what, if you're dead already, if you're alive when this happens or if you're already dead, they get to go and live with him. So is verse nine referring to this, this long-term interpretation? And I would say absolutely, without a doubt, regardless of your post, pre, mid, doesn't matter, absolutely referring to this. I know God's wrath is not necessarily the most fun topic to talk about. However, the reality that there is a wrath from God, I think makes the gospel even more beautiful. Um, Mo, I, I found a story in Exodus 33, which I think illustrates this really, really well. 
So in Exodus 33, there's a story of Moses and he asks the Lord to see his glory. He says, God, can I see your glory? And, and the Lord responds and says, okay, however, you can't see my face because if, if man sees my face, he'll die, he'll perish. And so they come up with a plan and Moses comes to this place in the rocks and he kind of goes into this cleft, into this crack in the rocks. And what the Lord does is the Lord covers Moses with his hand so that he doesn't see the Lord's face as he passes by. As the Lord passes by, then Moses looks and turns and can see the Lord's back, can see the Lord's glory. Josh, that's a super weird story. Well, kind of, I, I actually don't necessarily disagree. It's an interesting one for sure. But the point is this. As Tim Keller points out, the point is this, Moses was protected from God by God. Moses was protected from God by God. And that is the gospel. That's the gospel. This wrath that all of humanity is destined for that we deserve, the Lord has made a way through Jesus. He's protecting us from himself. And that is the gospel story. And we get to live with him forever. And that is what we have to encourage each other with. As Paul says there in verse 11, he says, you should encourage each other with these things. And so I encourage you. I encourage you. We have no idea when Jesus will return. It could come at any moment. And when he comes, we get to live with him. That should give us over overwhelming hope. Should give us overwhelming hope. Again, it should. It should give us hope if we're not completely numb to this reality, right? Because we've heard this before. It should give us hope if we're not numb to this reality, and it should give us hope if we have an accurate picture of just how amazing that is actually going to be. Have you ever found yourself in a conversation like this talking about uh, this hypothetical situation of if you could go to heaven right now and skip the rest of your entirety of your life, would you go? Have you ever had a conversation like that? I've been in uh, numerous conversations like that. And I find it interesting because it seems like such a difficult conversation and such a different, difficult uh, decision to make. I've even had moments in life where I've wrestled with like, oh, I don't know, it's such a tough decision. Why do we have, why? That's not a difficult decision if we have an accurate understanding of what heaven is actually like. Because regardless of how good your life is, regardless of what positive things you have coming up, up in your life. Earth, this place cannot compare, not even close to eternity with the Lord in heaven. Have you ever daydreamed about heaven? Have you ever like thought about what it'll be like? Uh, I want to do something very quick. I want you to just take a second wherever you're at. I want you to close your eyes. Just go ahead and just close your eyes. What I want you to do is I want you to think about just an amazing time of worship that you've had. Think about uh, a time where you just felt so in awe of the Lord, so surrendered to his will, so loved by him, so just like held and enveloped by him. Think about it. Just think for a second about maybe just an amazing time of worship that you've had. As I was thinking about it uh, over this time, as I was preparing, there's a number of times of worship that come to my mind. Uh, it's funny, I can actually picture some of the rooms that, are, that I was in, and I have a horrible memory. Um, I can picture some of the rooms that I was in. The first one is when I was a freshman in high school. I had gone on this retreat, and we were singing this song, Agnus Dei. 
Really sweet, simple song. One of my favorite all-time worship songs to this day, probably because of this moment, if I'm being honest. Simple, simple song, just declaring God's holiness. And I remember being in that moment and feeling the Lord more real and more present than I had ever experienced him before in my life. And what a, just a sweet moment of just declaring how holy, how holy the Lord is. I thought of another few from Hume Lake. There's probably a couple that I could point to, but one in particular. I was on a young adult retreat with some students here from the church. We had a missionary that had come and was the speaker and it was just sweet to hear him just open up God's word. I actually don't remember the specific song, but I remember being on my knees, just hands open, just completely surrendered saying, God, I will do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go and just the sweetness that there was in that surrender. Probably my favorite worship moment of all time was here in this very room for JJ's memorial service just back in October of 2019. And I cannot emphasize enough how amazing it felt to just praise the Lord despite the fact that we were hurting. And it wasn't just like an individual me thing. It was a corporate community thing of us as a church, everybody that was slam packed in this room, just coming in a spirit and a heart of hurt, but still just like worshiping the Lord with everything that we had. It was so, so special. I uh, specifically remember singing uh, the song Living Hope by Phil Wickham. And the chorus of that just sings, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You've broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. I can't help but think what heaven will be like with millions or even billions of other believers all there in the Lord's presence, actually able to see his face, belting out, screaming at the top of our lungs, worshiping the only one who is worthy of our praise in a way that has never been experienced before. My words don't even do it justice. They don't, they cannot. Literally, it will never get old for all of eternity. That's how amazingly incredible it'll be. If that doesn't fill you with hope, I don't know if I got anything for you. I don't know if I do. So no, we don't know when Jesus is returning and that's okay. And I'd even go one step further as to saying it's more than okay, it's good. It's good that we don't know when he's returning because the fact that we don't know when should produce this urgency and this hope in our lives. Should produce an urgency to live for what really matters in this short, short life that we have here on earth and a hope for what's to come. Let me pray for us. Dear Father, um, Lord, again, we just come to you acknowledging that this is not the first time we've heard this. This is not the first time we've talked about this conversation. Um, Lord, I pray that you would use it afresh in our hearts. Would you stir something in us, Lord, knowing that you could come at any time. Lord, we wanna be ready. We wanna be awake. 
Lord, we want to live with urgency. We want to live for you. We want to honor you with our bodies. We want to honor you with how we live. Lord, we want to have urgency in how we share and talk about you, Lord. Lord, would it be on the forefront of our minds? Would you keep it there? We're so prone to wandering, to forgetting. Lord, we need your help in this. We want to be mindful of what really matters day in and day out. Lord, thank you so much for the hope of heaven. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much that we can dream about the reality of what worshiping you forever will be like. Um, God, we're thankful for a chance to be together even online. We love you so, so much. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Yeah.
Amen. Well, thank you so much, worship team. And thank you guys for being here. Man, my hope is that this truth just penetrates, just penetrates our hearts and it is on our minds more and more and more. Would you go this week and live with a sense of urgency and with a sense of hope knowing what's to come? Have an amazing week. Love you guys.